0: This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong.
1: Hey there. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode is about art and technology. Featuring a conversation with Lindsay D. Felt and Vanessa Jay. Lindsay and Vanessa curated Recoding Cryptech, a multidisciplinary art exhibition at Super Arts Cultural Center in San Francisco in early 2020. you learn about how their collaboration and friendship started, what it was like curating this exhibit, some of the disabled artists that were part of the exhibits. and why cryptic disability torture and accessibility are more important than ever in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Are you ready? Don't worry, Rachel. Vanessa, see. Uh, thank you for being on my podcast today. Thank you,
2: it's such a delight to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: So, why don't I have you both uh, introduce yourself.
0: My name is Vanessa Chang. I am a writer and a curator and an educator. I'm currently based in the Bay Area, but I'm originally from Singapore. And I work primarily at the intersection of art and technology. I'm really interested in um, how art and technology impacts bodies um, and the ways in which that conversation can kind of feed uh, more interesting kind of exhibitions and conversations and writing and, and space in the classroom.
2: So my name is Lindsay Dolish and I am a Bay Area native also based in San Francisco. I am a lecturer at Stanford University in the program in Writing and Rhetoric, where I teach courses on disability, media, and technology. I have a PhD in English at Stanford. um, And my research looks at how disabled people shape conceptions of electronic communication from the Cold War era to present day and how this little recognized history is preserved in contemporary American literature and science fiction. I identify as deaf and we have bilateral cochlear implants. Before I went to graduate school, I was a journalist. Um, I was actually the women's soccer columnist for ESPN. And fun fact, I also played for the gold medal winning women's soccer team in the 2005 Deaf Olympics.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. So today we're talking about disability and technology and art. And I believe it was like early 2019 where I first had an email from the both of you about an exhibit that you two were curating called Recoding Cryptech that was at the Civil Arts uh, Cultural Center in San Francisco. And, you know, this exhibit was there from January 24th to the February 25th, 2020. How did this collaboration between the two of you come about?
2: Vanessa and I have developed this beautiful relationship that started in graduate school at Stanford. And I actually can remember the first time I met Vanessa and hopefully my memory serves me. Correct, but we took a class together as graduate students in the communication department, and it was essentially all about media studies. We had a really small, intimate class there, and we just, it was such a lovely, warm environment, and we just, I just really vibed with Vanessa's energy, and we had a lot of similar intellectual and shared interests. Really, the relationship kind of started there, and we started to collaborate on some small projects. While in graduate school, we put together a panel for a media studies conference. We started a dissertation writing group together. We were constantly treating our writing back and forth and talking and expanding our ideas with each other. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and um, Lindsay and I's research interests really met um, in the way we were thinking about disability and technology and embodiment. My dissertation was about gesture and electronic media and art and movement. You know, as I really did the work on that project and I like was dis- in discussions with Lindsay who was writing her project, she can talk about that more on uh, disability and sci-fi and um, literature. I learned that it was a really crucial part of this history of technology that you can't really talk about the history of technology without talking about the role disability has to play in that. Part of my dissertation was focused on an artist who we ended up showing in the in the exhibition. It was just so amazing for me. And it was about urban space and drawing and street art. And um, I looked at the graffiti writer and artist, Tempt. After he developed ALS, he started using this um, technology that he... Collaborate with a, a crew of makers and engineers to develop so that he draw with his eyes. And so, you know, a lot of that work for me was really informed um, by that ongoing collaboration. And after I graduated and I started to do more curatorial work um, in the Bay Area in art and technology and learn more about the scene, it seemed to me like there was a really uh, important discourse about disability in the Bay Area that needed to be showcased and that Mm -hmm. there was room to really um, explore that in an artistic space. And so I ended up seeing at some point that Soma Arts had a curatorial residency and I was a little bit familiar with Soma Arts and I saw that they were really committed to interesting work Mm -hmm. that had social justice at its Mm -hmm. center. And Mm -hmm. so I saw this call and I was like, you know, this collaboration that Lindsay and I have had and these conversations Lindsay have had and the work that I've been doing as a curator, like I think there's a lot of possibility here. So got in
2: touch with Lindsay and I said, Hey, I have this, have this idea. What do you think? I was like, I am not qualified for this at all. I have no curator experience, but I have a wealth of experience about disability and technology and I have so many thoughts about this. And I never turned down an opportunity to collaborate with Vanessa who is absolutely brilliant and I think just brings out the best in me. So and I hope I bring out the best in her too. I think well, sure. but anyway, so I, I thought it was a really exciting opportunity when we started to develop our initial proposal for what we wanted to work on during the residency and we started to spitball a little bit, and um, I was thinking about a lot about my research during this time, specifically, again, this sort of discourse of how disability has fundamentally shaped electronic communication and technology throughout technological history, I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, I was studying and still continue to study the ways that disabled people hack, crib, and remake technologies for their own ends, and, and how these hacks get redistributed and appropriated into mainstream technological cultures. So, my work is really connecting the role of disabled users and crib politics and the modern legacy of hacking and human machine interaction. And I was really eager to think with Vanessa about how we could use the show as an opportunity to kind of create a platform to showcase those kinds of works um, and connect with a public-facing community rather than just an academic community.
1: The name of your exhibit, tech is something that resonates with me deeply, but I think... For a lot of people maybe who are not disabled, for example, they have no idea what tech means or just, you know, Crip itself. So, you know, I'd like to take that just a moment to ask both of you kind of, how do you define tech Or just, you know, what was the thinking behind the name of the exhibit and just the names you wanted to kind of highlight?
0: Well, technologies. And it, I mean, it's, it's a particularly resonant conversation to have in the Bay Area. You know, everybody uh, thinks about the Bay Area and Silicon Valley as this nexus of technology and technology having this world-changing impact. And there isn't enough reflection on what technologies do or what they assume. Technologies are not neutral objects, right? They're designed for particular bodies and identities, and they're a very poor fit with bodies that don't actually fit a norm.
2: Yeah. And I can jump in and say, so we were thinking that along the lines of technologies that are catering to specific users, we wanted to sort of explode the idea that technology is about curing or fixing disability and instead centering disability innovation, that specifically disability-led innovation, right? Not trying to innovate so that People with disabilities are like passive recipients of these technologies, but are actually active makers and users and designers of those technology. And that's just like a reality of what we do as a disability community.
1: That is so true. And I think there's a lot of misnomers about tech, just like the idea that who just to create tech, right? Like this idea that, oh, you have to be a developer or an engineer or have a lot of technical skills, and that's simply not true, you know, that there are people who are creating and innovating and just doing a lot of things with technology or just, you know, that's not exactly, like, about coding. Like, there's, there's just, I think such a narrow idea of what technology is, and I think especially with disabled people, they just have a much more broader, fluid idea of what's, what technology is and what you know, basically what we do in this world that's basically not built for us is, you know, pretty much something that we do every day to just of hacking. It might not be called hacking, but it is hacking.
0: Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Cryptech is everywhere. Yes. It's, and that's something that we really wanted to highlight in the show as well, that we really thought about technology in a really expansive way. You know, technology is not just code. It's mm-hmm. not just... Uh, your refrigerator it's it's really the various kinds of tools that I mean that really everybody uses I mean it's interesting Sarah Hendren talks about all technologies being assistive right because Mm -hmm. they actually do mediate our relationship with our environment curb cuts are kind of technology The, the whole built environment is technology and so that's that's how we were really thinking about about that in the show right that Technology is not simply just these tools, but they are these embodiments and manifestations of social and political ideas about who's using those tools and who they're designed for and that to crip or hack them is to to make them fit, as Mm -hmm. you were saying, these really these
2: bodies that they're not designed for. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I'll also add in response to your question about the, the title of the show, we were we were very intentional about that and and we thought very deeply about the critical importance of naming this show and we did wrestle a little bit with titling the show Recoding Crip Tech because we thought there was a possibility that some people wouldn't understand what Crip meant but we thought you know what we can we can teach them through the language of the shows, through the work of the artists. And that work is so important that mm-hmm. so we didn't want to shy away from that kind of language, that especially the the political activism and the history behind that that's embedded in Crip. But I did want to sort of acknowledge that Karen Nakamura at UC Berkeley hosted a conference called crip Tech in 2018. And that the title of that really resonated with us. So we saw the show in a way as like kind of building on that conversation. Mm-hmm. Karen is, was a part of the show. She was part of the opening night panel um, and we are, we are planning to work with her going forward. But cryptech is also short for a larger term called science, And that's the term that kind of circulates in academic discourse. And it was coined, I believe, by um, Amy Homwe and, and mm-hmm. Kelly Bush, And it really examines this sort of concept, or puts forward this concept about how disabled people critique and alter and reinvent the built world around them, right? But And try to highlight mm-hmm. that misfit, right? Because this world is built for non-disabled bodies.
1: Yeah, and I just want to give a shout-out to Amy because Amy and uh, a they co-edited a special issue, a catalyst journal on crypto science, and it's a fantastic issue. I actually got to write an essay for it about plastic straws in crypto science. So I love how we all have these like interconnections.
2: That was such a wonderful piece, and um, I was really honored to have a piece alongside your book too. So yeah, I had a piece that thing special issue about female hackers and and the telephone switchboard in James Tiptree's The Girl Who Was Plugged In, which is um, a 1970s short story about a disabled female protagonist. So that was so cool to be alongside your your work, Alice.
1: Well, it's just funny. It's just like all these kind of uh, relationships and connections we're all trying to try to build this larger body of work, you know. And that to me is really exciting, that, you know, we're all kind of in these spaces, having these, you know, conversations to really advance, you know, the ideas and the culture that we all are kind of intimately familiar with.
0: Yeah, and I think like when we talk about crypt tech as well, community is really central to that. You know, a lot of this work is community based. It's about these interdependent relationships mm-hmm. and the the way in which people are entwined and their impact on each other. So it's wonderful to hear how those entwinements are kind of actually playing out mm-hmm. you know, in all of these different
1: spaces. Absolutely, and I think people like you know Kara Dr. Bora and just a lot of other people who've been doing work in this area as well. It's just been you know really informative and just really laid so much groundwork, you know, I think that's also just something I'm glad that you brought up as well. We're talking in early January 2021, which is about uh, 11 months into the pandemic, uh, at least in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was kind of curious about What you both think is especially significant about CripTech and disability culture and accessibility, that's significant now and, you know, truly will be long after, you know, we quote-unquote recover from the pandemic. What are some things that you think, you know, are really important kind of aspects of CrypTech that I think more people need to be aware of?
2: I love this question, and I I wish I could be an oracle here, but I will do my best to kind of foresee what I think will remain. Um, But maybe I'll speak to sort of my hopes. I'm hoping that there will be increased awareness around accessibility and um, the kind of the exciting possibilities at virtual gatherings, entail via Zoom, Google Meet, all of those virtual meeting platforms have really opened up a lot of possibilities for the disabled community to be present um, and to attend in ways that maybe they might have been um, constrained from attending before. So I think that's really exciting to me. I'm hoping that maybe we can move towards, we can sustain that by offering more hybrid models that value both the in-person attendance, um, but also offer and hold space for those who want to attend virtually as well, right? And I think there's some really exciting possibilities for that. We still have a lot of thinking to do Mm -hmm. about how to improve that though. Of course, there have been a lot of new challenges that have arisen Mm -hmm. through these virtual platforms. Um, I mean, I'm experiencing a lot of these challenges in a new way for the first time as a deaf person, where I have had to kind of go back and request captioning for my classes that I teach, which I haven't had to do in a long time because communication can be so glitchy, right? But I think if we build these things back into the platforms, then we can continue to move forward to more equitable communication platforms mm-hmm. after the pandemic. And and what's really interesting and also frustrating for me is that so many people have been saying in the disability community we've we've been thinking about all of this all along, and why is it that we've had to go through a global pandemic to finally be asking these questions? So it's both exciting and frustrating at the same time.
0: This is a great question because it kind of it foregrounds this notion of community and like cryptech again right like there are all these solutions that are coming up that are great but kind of imperfect i mean i'm i don't know if you've seen the zoom captioning it's (laughs)
1: yes
0: it's it's a bit of a scene (laughs) but at the same time you get these these community solutions right like people are sharing transcripts with each other to try and mitigate that um, and address imperfect captioning. Sometimes people are also assigning other people who are not necessarily professional transcriptionists to do so. So here again, we're seeing people draw on community resources that they've been building for a long time you know, to sustain and support each other in different ways. And these mutual aid networks that really recognize how some community members are more vulnerable than others. You know, I'm thinking about people who can't leave their their homes and using things like Google spreadsheets to uh, support each other, bring each other groceries. And that's, again, where I think we really keep needing to return to community for community solutions, um, alongside technological ones, because they continue to be imperfect in many ways Um, and you know I think too we'll see coming out of this I mean are we we going to recover from the pandemic (laughs) I I don't know I kind of hope we don't in some ways you know I, I really hope that we we learn you know from this year that we're not just like oh okay well everything's back to normal this will cause us to reflect on what's really worth saving and what's really worth transforming and what's really worth keeping, you know, so in terms of these kinds of virtual encounters, maybe what we can do is really think about hybrid models for participation, right? How do we have in-person and, and virtual models? How can we have recordings and, and resources after an event? So people can watch or listen at their own leisure. There's been a lot of, of discourse this year I mean there was even a piece in the Atlantic that cited crypt time as like mm-hmm. the new normal right so how how can we understand and have a more capacious understanding of of technology and space and time that that we move forward from with this pandemic
1: mm-hmm. yeah and I think one of my hopes is that it's not gonna happen overnight it's gonna take uh, quite a while uh, I think it's the idea that there's gonna be more co-creation and more you know opportunities for you know disabled people and technologists and just you know people within this uh, larger what we think of as the tech industry for example to really work on solutions together you know rather than just kind of taking from the wisdom and just extracting, you know, the work of disabled people, the culture of disabled people, and appropriating it. I think that's one of the things that I've noticed for a long time, is that the innovations and, you know, creations of disabled people really, you know, did not receive the credits that they deserve. And I think this is what's really important about exhibits like yours and just all this kind of scholarship is to really name and identify a document. You know what uh, so many people in our community have done. And I think that's uh, that's an ongoing challenge. Mm-hmm. To get back to the exhibits I was wondering if there was any particular artist or exhibit in particular that was really memorable for you, It means that really delighted you about putting this exhibit together. Because it's only just very early 2020, this exhibit was available to the public. But just, you know, in the creation of it, what were some of your fondest memories or highlights?
0: so hard to choose <laughs> there were there so many different um, different pieces that were so memorable for different reasons, you know, and we had the opportunity to really collaborate with artists in different ways that were really exciting that highlighted how creative the curatorial process could be um, I guess one that particularly blew my mind was uh, M. Eiffler of Blink Pop Shift's Prosthetic Memory um, which was a, a piece that used a bespoke artificial intelligence as a prosthetic memory um, M has long-term um, amnesia and is unable to create uh, long-term memories and And I want want to do the piece justice because it's not just about the installation that was there. When you went to encounter it, it was like a desktop space with various kind of paraphernalia that you have on a desk and a projector. It had a binder with pieces of paper and a camera over it. And when you flip the pages of the binder, it would then project videos um, onto the table. And so what it was was that M um, and their partner had trained this AI with their writing practice so as part of this life practice. I mean, it's an art installation, but it's a life practice. Um, and they have a four-page-a-day writing practice, and that was the training material for the AI. The AI was trained on that, and then that was coupled with their video diary. And this archive kind of worked together to create this searchable, indexable memory uh, that... You know, it was just an incredibly generous and vulnerable thing to put out there as an art piece. Uh, And I, I was just struck by how they put it together. And, you know, you'd have these different moments of encountering the work and, some of the the videos that you saw were just incredibly joyous and, and personal, and it would be M kind of trying on outfits at home or M walking <laughs> in the park. Others would be M lying in bed, kind of struggling with um, with chronic pain. It was such an interesting piece because, you know, as they said, it was like the TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside mm. than <laughs> on the outside. You couldn't really see that. Uh, but it really, to me, highlighted this, like, crip aesthetic right this like crip approach to technology i'm sure you're aware of how problematic ai can be right and how so many of these machine learning technologies tend to reproduce systemic bias and racism Mm -hmm. and it's just such a wonderful personal um, reclamation of that Mm -hmm. and the way that piece came about was you know i have a prior relationship with them from um, previous shows that i've done they had a different uh piece called uh, masking machine which was using machine learning as a project faces like a kind of digital makeup and so i approached them saying hey we're doing this this crypt show do you want to be part of it and they developed this piece um in support of that you know we ended up nominating it for the starts prize which is a european um award in science art technology and it was an honorable mention you know it's like top 10 uh, global prize and something that really became like visible and legible to a really large community. So I guess I would, I would suggest that one would be one particularly
2: memorable one for me.
1: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing, Vanessa. How about you, Letsy?
2: I mean, all of the pieces resonated with me in, in such different ways, but one that felt a little bit more personal, um, that just really took my breath away was, was Darren Martin's Ancestral Songs. And this was a, a large scale multimedia projection. It was projected by two videos, and it took up the entire, the longest wall we had in the whole gallery space. It was Darren's first premiere of the work. And so we got to visit him in his studio when she was conceiving of this and in a very early stage of, of putting it together. And we were so excited by the opportunity to not only premiere his work, but just even he invited us in to collaborate with him, which was truly remarkable and um, generous of him to do that. So Darren is an artist with the hearing loss. And so that book, Ancestral Songs, was about taking hearing aids that had been passed down to him through both ancestors and friends and um, through his like, kinship community, and he would take them to various spots in nature that he loved, and he would turn the hearing aid on, hold it in his hand, and let it speak to nature. So the, the hearing aid would feed back because it was not in the ear. And as someone who used to wear a hearing aids for a long time, my twin sister, who has perfect hearing would always be complaining about my hearing aids feeding back and I was always getting commentary in these your hearing aids are feeding back so Darren turned this into a beautiful thing he made the hearing aids converse with nature and and just showed how you can kind of invert that relationship and that just was a profound moment for me to see that um there were some other components to that piece as well, where he created these um, stereoscopic views that you could look into. And it was a completely different environment. It was mm-hmm. projecting a domestic environment, a small enclosed space. Mm-hmm. And he had these water glasses and he would put the hearing aids in the water glasses. You know, when you put your fingers around the rim of a glass and it creates that sort of sound. Well, he would do that. He like played the hearing aids as instruments too. And it also created a sense of vertigo when you looked into the viewers, which I think kind of tied really nicely mm. into um, a side effect that a lot of people with healing loss experience. So it was just such a thoughtful piece that really kind of spoke to my own lived experiences of mm. uh, hearing loss.
1: That sounds so wonderful. And I think this is, you know, to me, what is so different about exhibits that are curated by us, for us, that is, you know, still this exception, right? It's just, you know, I think there's still a larger conversation about museums and about just, you know, galleries and art spaces and exhibits where there's still so many people kind of excluded from being able to put together these kind of shows. Can curation and just, you know, museums in general be hacked? So to be, you know, more accessible for all kinds of people and what kinds of, like, you know, practices that you both learned in putting this exhibit together that you like to see, you know, adopted more broadly?
0: We're we're seeing a lot of work and discussion around this topic right now. Uh, There's just been a lot of interest in creating this kind of kind of access. And, and so I think it's the right moment to really have this conversation. We'd love to see curators and artists really take up the mantle of access as central to the creative process, as central to aesthetic ideation process and product. Because right now access is, I mean, there are standards, you know, you have uh, pedestal heights, you have um, audio description, you have captioning, and these are all important and necessary, uh, but it usually comes up like something that after the work or exhibition is complete. And there's so many amazing possibilities for what can emerge when the artist or curator thinks about access as originating or underlying aesthetic or design principle of the work. Why wouldn't you want everyone to be able to engage with the work at its core aesthetic access is access like an, an art that communicates to everyone. There are limitations to that. You know, a piece is not truly accessible to everyone in every way, but there can be different kinds of artistic elements, and it can in itself, access can in itself be an artistic practice. I'm thinking here of, like, Christine Sun Kim's work with captions, right, where the captions themselves become this really fascinating poetic dialogue with her as she signs, or, um, you know, a piece that we had in the show, uh, Kinetic Lights Revel in Your Body, which is a wheelchair dance performance has the most extraordinary audio description, right? It's audio description as art, like the language is poetic. The performance is, um, is breathless. The, the voice rushes and rises, you know, as the performance crescendos, but also, um, falls as it does. There's also work right now on alt text poetry. So these can be creative practices, right? And that's that's what I'd like to see more of, like actually thinking about these as creative and collaborative practices.
2: Me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll also add to that and say other things that we love to see and something that we tried to do in our show as well that got a lot of really positive feedback was to foreground touch and tactile engagement. Uh, which really is often pushed aside um, or deprioritized, especially in museum spaces, right, in order to protect the artwork. But art is meant to be engaged with, right? And so I, I really invite us to think more creatively about how we can bring touch into those kinds of spaces. Of course, you know, Georgina Cleach has done so much work around this, and I think it's really important, critical work, um, but why not offer find opportunities to offer more tactile sam- samples, right? Um, lead guided tactile tours that are open to to everyone. Maybe we can we can ask artists to fabricate additional materials for users to engage with you know from from the beginning, right so, and, and multiple forms of that. So so that's one suggestion that I have. Um, I'm also thinking, about instead of just having an accessibility coordinator at a museum, if if they even have one, why not train curators to ask these questions and to really invite those kinds of collaborations with artists from the beginning of their project, rather than Mm -hmm. after the project has been completed. So that really builds on that kind of ethic of interdependence and care that is so vital to disability community. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, I love all of these ideas, and I really hope that if anybody listens to this episode who's, you know, in the museum world or art world, just really take these uh, ideas to heart because, you know, this is all about, I think, making cultural institutions not only more accountable, because really we're in an era where People are demanding more accountability in a lot of different ways, but also just, you know, museums being ideology, to write their complicity and excluding people to their history. And I think this is really part of this larger, broader, more, you know, difficult conversation that people didn't have. So I really appreciate all of the things that you both shared. And as we wrap up this conversation, I want to, you know, ask you both about the future, and kind of plans that you both have, in the next two three, five years. You know, what are you working on now that you can kind of share with us, and just things that you're both looking forward to as we enter the new year.
2: From this show that we put together, we, we kept thinking, and we were just so excited by the response, the positive response that it received, and we felt like our work was left unfinished, that we decided to start thinking about ways to expand on the show. One of our um, exhibition partners was Leonardo Isaac, and we decided to have a conversation with them about maybe building on that collaboration further. And so we got together, put our heads together and developed a proposal for uh, a cryptech incubator that would essentially build on some of the same principles of the show, this idea around um, access, how we can implement that as part of an aesthetic process full cycle right from the beginning of the artist's conception to to the end. And so we put this proposal out and we were really fortunate, we're excited to share that we received a seed funding from the California Arts Council for a three-year grant to build out um, the Recoding Quip Tech exhibition, though so it's officially called um, the Quip Tech Incubator. And, and I'll let Vanessa pick up on laying out some of the details of that.
0: Sure. So, Leonardo, uh, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology, is now the institutional home for the project. And Leonardo is a global think tank that's really dedicated to nurturing and cultivating innovative work in art, science, and tech. Their model is this full cycle creative engine, right? It's about supporting a creative idea from ideation through incubation into dissemination. So when we brought this idea to them, it's like, well, how can this notion of aesthetic access and cryptech work through that process and with their network? Because Leonardo has an extraordinary network. Um, and for now, it's grounded in California, though we have ambitions of taking it farther afield, depending on how it goes. So uh, CrypTech Incubator is a three-year project that really tries to rethink the creative design, design cycle through an accessibility lens. It's about creating this cross-sector, cross-disciplinary platform to support disabled artists and to create and collaborate on new media works like games or VR or AI. Um, it will encompass the full cycle of idea from ideation. It has residencies, workshops, talks, presentations, exhibitions, and education. We're really excited to partner with um, a set of really um, committed people and partners who have amazing resources at their disposal that they're really interested in investing in the project. These include um, the Berkeley Disability Lab. So Kara Nakamura leads that. And so we'll be partnering with her to place a resident at Berkeley Display Lab and to develop an idea um, around aesthetic access at Berkeley. ThoughtWorks Arts Residency, ThoughtWorks is a, a multinational corporation which has an arts residency and their model is embedding an artist in the organization and giving them incredible software engineering resources to achieve wild projects. So another artist will be embedded there. Santa Barbara Center for Art, Science, and Technology is an independent uh, residency center in Santa Barbara, which has a, its own media environment, including a haptic floor that artists, that you can code using Macs, like you would program sound, you can program the floor, so we'll place someone else there. Um, and Beale Center for Art and Technology in Irvine. And so these are just the residency centers where they'll um, actually work on developing the ideas. We'll also, um, through Leonardo's network, they'll be giving talks and presentations and um, publishing the outcomes of the work. One of Leonardo's institutional partners is Arizona State University. So we're also creating educational content about aesthetic access that we'll put online and that we'll hope to really create a larger platform for. And we'd like to marshal uh, the disability community and the artists and give them a bigger, ever bigger platform, you know, to showcase these ideas. Uh, So ultimately, exhibiting the work, creating a special publication of Leonardo, which has a journal and... um, just really trying to create a platform and a space for people to innovate, for disabled folks to innovate around aesthetic access and CRIP technology and CRIP new media art.
1: I love it. <laughs> I love it. So if anybody wants to to learn more about the updates about the CRIP Tech incubator, uh, where should it go to kind of get the latest?
0: We are still working on getting the site up at Leonardo, but if um, eventually when you go to Leonardo.info, we'll have a CrypTech tech incubator site. We also have a website for the exhibition that will ha- that has another link to the incubator, and that will be at recodingcryptech.com.
1: Perfect. Well, let's see. If I am so thankful for the both of you. It just all that you're doing, all that you're building, you're just Created together a community. It's a really wonderful thing. and it gives me hope. It gives me hope for the future.
2: And thank you to you, Alice, for being such an amazing role model for the community and Mm -hmm. actually truly integral to the show in more ways than you know um, and to the incubator. So we want to thank you as well. Absolutely
0: echoing what Lindsay says, and it is. It's a privilege to be here and to be able to share this work with you.
1: Well, I can't wait to see this incubator just you know, launch and just you know, hopefully change the landscape. I think you know, there's so much potential, and it's really, really exciting. So thank you both so much for uh, being on my podcast today.
2: Thank you so much, Alice. Yeah, my pleasure.
1: This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project, and online community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media culture. All episodes, including texture strips, are available at com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Let's Lizzie and Vanessa on my website. The audio producer for this episode is Cheryl Green. Introduction by Latif McLeod. The music for the sports Team. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Podcasts. You can also support our podcast for dollar month or more. By go Patriot page at patreon.com slash D-V-P. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash D-V-P. Thanks for listening. And see you on the internet. Bye! Rock to the blast stop, stop, drop, dance off.